This is Sending Signals, a show about music and creativity. I'm your host, Matt Royal. Welcome to the show. Our guests this week, singer-songwriter Tom Baxter. And I speak to Joe and Tom from a band WH Lung. Tom Baxter first came to my attention back in 2003 as a support act for Damien Rice at Shepherd's Bush Empire. His set made me take notice and I remember flyers were given out for his residency up the road at Bush Hall. I ended up attending two of those shows and they were fantastic. I sort of had that feeling that I was in on something early. His debut album Feather and Stone finally came out on Columbia Records in October 2004. He's not been tremendously prolific but has now released a total of four albums, most recently a very stripped down record entitled The Other Side of Blue. You'll hear some clips of that album during the interview. I'll confess to being somewhat of a lapsed fan, but I was interested in his story. His career has had some interesting turns. The fandom of David Schwimmer led to Tom's song Better being used in the movie Run Fatboy Run. That song was also covered by Boyzone in 2008. Shirley Bassey recorded his song Almost There for her 2009 album The Performance. But despite these moments, I feel like Tom hasn't yet managed to break through into the mainstream but he hasn't really had the success that I anticipated he might achieve when I saw him all those years ago. We don't shy away from that discussion during our chat. Putting this interview together has been a fascinating process. Tom doesn't often give interviews these days, and we had a fairly lengthy chat on the phone before I pinned Tom down to a day and time, almost like he was auditioning me. On the flip side, once Tom had committed to the interview, I really felt that he was on side and open and totally engaged. He was so generous with his time, happy to talk and just kind. I'm really grateful that he came to trust me enough to do this. We get into the nuts and bolts of trying to be a self-sustaining artist in 2021. Tom isn't trying to present a facade, he's candid about the difficulties of his situation, as well as his own indecisions and uncertainties. He recently became a father, the subject of which is the starting point for what you're about to hear. I hope you enjoy it. Were you, were you nervous about becoming a dad? No, I, I wasn't nervous. I was very, very excited about it. Um, I mean, I suppose there's an element of nervousness to becoming a father in the sense that you want to feel like you could be a good influence on them and be able to guide them and support them. So I suppose that is, I think it's a little bit more daunting as they get older and they start talking and you realise, because for the first three years, or at least the first two years, should I say, they're like, I mean, it sounds strange to say this, but they're almost sexless and sort of, there's an almost alienness to them. They're sort of like, they're just this sort of thing that you, you love, that you absolutely adore. Yeah. But, you know, she's a little girl, my daughter, but it's almost like you don't even see their sex. It's almost, it's, well, this is how I experience it. You just sort of see them as this kind of thing in your life that sort of dominates everything. And then when they sort of, you know, sort of grow and they turn into this little person, you know, with thoughts and feelings and it's bizarre because you're sort of realising, hang on, I'm 
Is it daughter? Am I the daughter? You know, because for the first two years, it's baby. It's, it probably sounds really strange to say that, but that's that's how I experience. No, I think that's I think that's an amazing point. Now you've said it, that feels really obvious. But yeah. I don't I don't feel like I've heard anyone articulate that before. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I don't I don't know if uh, you know. I suppose I haven't really seen that many parents whilst because of the whole pandemic and stuff. But it's very surreal. It's very, and I think now she's a, she's just lovely. I mean beautiful age where she's now you know daddy's because for the first two years daddy's not you know you're 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 important in terms of really supporting the mother and the functionality of everything but it's they want the mum you know then they sort of grow and you become this thing like, oh, this guy's been hanging around for two years I'm like I've really got to get to know it you know and then it sort of shifts things and it's very it's very interesting because it's you're just continuous. It's like having a mirror in front of you. It's like you're continuously reflecting upon your own relationship with the world and also the fact that you can't remember any of this stuff. You can't remember how much your parents loved you at that age. I mean, you can't remember that you couldn't eat, you know, that you, you had to have food spooned into your mouth. And, you know, all these really simple things. You remember you couldn't walk and someone helped you walk. I mean, it's just... And you and you're always looking and thinking you're not going to remember any of this, you know, because yeah. they don't. Yeah. We don't, you know. So it's like a real um, I don't know what's the word um, rites of passage. I think. Well, it feels that way to me, you know. Yeah, that's that's a weird that's a weird thing to get your head around, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I, I think the thing is, when you're growing up, you know, I mean, I was watching this this morning, funnily enough, because we had our I had my wife's par- uh, parents here, and there was so there's four adults, you know, the grandparents, me and my wife, and my daughter, you know, all laughing, playing, um, you know, um, jousting for attention from this little character. She's very funny, little character, and and you know, everything's focused on her, and because she's, you know she's so cute as well, so. They, they grow into the world like we all do with this kind of sense of it's about me, you know, it's about me and my thoughts, my ambitions, my future. Um, this is, of course, if you're lucky enough to have parents who nurture you, love you and care for you. you know? um, and then you grow up into the world and you go through your experience of life. And I think for me, the experience of having a child has been where that, that suddenly your experience of, of it being about you just completely disappeared. And then it's just, it's it's almost like um, a page turns and then there's this, this little baby and you you suddenly realise that your your life is important. But it's it's kind of like the, it's like a, sometimes it's a bit like a second chance to right wrongs. Or to, you know, that's how you feel. You're like, okay, well, I would like to be able to try to make this memorable for her or try to you know um, you start to reflect upon your parents and you think you know my, my my parents had four kids you know four kids how did they do that you know they didn't have TV put on to distract us you know which is what all parents do now TV on <laughs> you know we had to paint with draw with do all sorts of things and you suddenly realise just how amazing your parents were because you spent most of your life criticising you know, you know what they didn't give you you didn't reflect on what they did give you 
Do you see what I mean? Yeah. It's terribly humbling. Are your parents still around for you to tell them this? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I, and I, do, I do tell them this, yeah. Um, they're separated, but they, um, yeah, we, we're, we're, all, we're all very close. You know, as close as we can be, considering the sort of pandemic stuff, I haven't obviously seen them that much. But um, yeah, I, I actually do make quite an effort to, particularly I tell my mum about it. I probably, I probably need to tell my dad about it a bit more. But I think my mum always, um, I think she really appreciates it. Not, not because she needs it from me, but I think she's always sort of, yeah, I don't know. I suppose it's, I just feel it's my duty to, tell her how much I appreciate them or to tell my dad. I, mean, I do tell my dad as well, but it's, of course, they both had different roles. You know, you have a lot of sympathy for your parents when you become a parent, because um, you suddenly realize how difficult it is to actually get anything done, do anything else than just, you know, spend most of your life washing up, cleaning up and, and, and sorting out bath time and getting them up and so forth and so on. It just goes around and around. So, you know, to have been given all that opportunity that I had to, Simple things like my dad buying me a guitar when I was 13, you know, making all that effort to go out and buy me this guitar. And he bought me, you know, two or three guitars in my time, all of which I have. You know, these things, they just start to mean so much to you because you realize that they were portals. They were, they were avenues for you to walk and explore Yeah, so I really, I really appreciate it. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to dwell forever on this because it's not, you know, it's not where you are now but i i do i do really want to ask about the kind of early days of your career because that's sure. that's my most kind of personal connection to you because okay so i remember going to see damien rice at shepherd's bush empire in i think it was 2001 okay. and it was it was before i would taken off yeah big time you know it was still it still felt like a bit of a secret at that point and uh, I went with my friend Kate, and so we, yeah, we got there and got inside, and there, there was two support acts. There was you, who we hadn't heard of, yeah. and there was Rodrigo and Gabriella. Oh yeah, gosh yeah, you're bringing my memory now. Yeah, yeah, who we hadn't heard of either. And uh, yeah. so uh, I think I think we'd gone into a bar to get something to drink, and it was like, oh, should we go in and catch Tom Baxter? And so we we walked in. I think. <laughs> I think you'd probably, probably not people there. <laughs> you probably like you're probably on your first song or second song. We like we yeah. got in fairly early for your set, and um, I remember we were just like really. You did you did um day in Verona, mm-hmm. and I remember um yeah my friend Kate turned to me and going, I think that might be like the best thing I've seen live before. Like <laughs> we we were just really we were really yeah it was really affecting. And uh, that whole night was amazing. Rodrigo and Gabriella were like phenomenal. I didn't know anything about them. And I don't know if you stuck around for Damien's set that night. I did, yeah. Yeah, it was great. But it was, I'd never seen anything like it. You know, I was quite young and I felt it, you know, it, it was really special. It like, it was just, it was just an incredible, it was like an incredible night. And, uh, and you were doing the Bush, you were doing the Bush Hall residency at the time or were about to start it. And so um, I coaxed my friend uh, Louis into going. We went to, yeah, we saw you on this Monday and we went up again like two weeks later uh, to see you again. Mm. I just wonder, like, from your perspective, what that time period was like. Were you, 
what did you think you were building like what kind of community were you trying to build did you have did you have like a roadmap in mind were you was there someone else's career that you'd looked at and thought oh that's kind of how I want to approach things what was that time period like for you well what had happened for me I suppose I have to give you a little bit of a backstory to it to be able to give it some sort of to put it into context you know previous to that I'd been doing it for years and I'd been I'd generally been in bands you know being quintessentially the sort of main songwriter but trying to sort of do a sort of more diplomatic kind of merge of talents and pull it together and become the Beatles or the Stones whatever it is you might be into Zeppelin whatever that was the sort of voyage we were on um, and for like millions of other people in bands know how difficult that is to kind of continue that with everyone's different interests and so forth. So eventually the band that I had, the last band, really sadly split up and it really was quite heartbreaking because I had my brother in it. That split up and then I sort of decided, okay, this was probably about 28, 29. I thought, well, I'm going to just look, you know, I was losing my mind by this point, you know, because you get to a point in music where you're just thinking this is just, it's just, is this ever going to happen? So I sort of decided that if it doesn't happen by the age of 30, I'm going to jack it in and, and, and stop concentrating on something else. Mm. So I sort of made that my aim. I thought, well, I'm just going to have to go out on my own because I haven't got anyone else, you know. So I started doing these nights, just me and the guitar. And it was the time around when David Gray had just, you know, had this massive hit with White Ladder. So the whole kind of singer-songwriter genre, I suppose, Somebody with guitar, basically, lyric-based vibe thing was all kind of coming back. I started doing these shows at this place called the Bedford in Ballum, and that just started to create um, a momentum. Um, I was actually the sort of in-house painter and decorator. That was my sort of day job. And then in the huh. evenings, now and again, I'd do these shows playing. But it wasn't like I, you know, I was continuously sort of trying to do something. It was just, it was actually a friend of mine who was actually really putting the lights on, and I was often supporting him, but people had started to come and support me. So then together we found, uh, there was a chap called James Carrington, we then went over and found this place. We went and looked at it, looked at it together called the Bush Hall, and it, they were, it was this beautiful old Victorian building which was just being used. It had been used as a snooker hall, and then was had just been taken over by someone who wanted to do different stuff with it. And at the time, they were just putting weddings on really and we said look could we come and take it one night because we knew that we knew that if we could sort of start something happening there with a beautiful venue um we could try and sort of make it into something we started doing stuff together and he was headlining and i was supporting him and that created more momentum and eventually i took it over with my best friend ollie who i was just explaining to you i've got a, you know i've got a studio in his back of his garden still to this day um, and me and Ollie, who did all the string arrangements, Ollie Langford, on my first two albums, uh, he, we just put everything we had into making the experience of walking in the door to the beginning to the end of the evening a beautiful sort of creative experience and one that had the feeling of that when you came in, um, you wanted to be there. You know, mm. down to the lighting, down to the plants in the corner of the room, which we, by the way, we brought everything in. We brought all the lighting in, 
put all the candles on the tables ourselves. You know, we were like um, we were renting in a PA to bring it all in, and we were purposefully uh, anyone who knows this venue called Bush Hall, which has now become a real big London venue. You know, yeah, it's a lovely, yeah. it's a lovely venue. It's great, yeah. But you'll notice if you go there now, you walk in from the bar and you go straight in and you're at the back of the venue. Well, we didn't want it like that because we knew that what that creates is it creates clutter at the back of the room. So we purposefully shifted the whole room onto the side so that once you got into the room and you sat down at your table, wherever it was, you know, if it was right over on the other side, it was a real hassle to get out and get, go and get a drink. You know, so the doorway where you'd come in would get completely filled up with people who would just stand there and to get in and out of the place would be a nightmare. Yeah. But we did that purposely so that we could keep everyone in the room because we knew from a lot of experience of playing in venues is the worst venues to play are when you're there and you've got this cavernous space at the back and it makes it doubly worse when you've got a bar situated right at the back because just people stand at the bar and they just start talking, you know, and so forth and so on. So the whole thing was kind of, is an you know, we, we'd, we put it together in a functional way to create an atmosphere, basically. And our idea was we wanted to make it something that we would give people the opportunity to listen to music or see things that perhaps they wouldn't normally see at venues. Because we were sick of playing venues where it was just, you know, um, like a cattle market, you know, you paid your ticket to come in to see that person and then all leave because that person's come off stage and then the next person comes on with their crowd. And it was this sort of money-making scheme by venues to just get people through the door. And we hated that because it didn't create a community. It didn't create a sense of, you know, you come in to see an act and it happened to be me who'd be headlining. But, you know, we'd put on cellists playing Bach or we'd put on a piano player, a you know, classical piano player or put on some jugglers. We had these sort of, had some can-can dancers. We had some... We had all sorts of different things that are happening on a more sort of, if you like, a sort of cabaret sense, but it wasn't done in a sort of tacky way. It was meant to be seen as an experience. Yeah, I don't remember much about the support act. It may be because we were travelling up from South End, and so maybe by the time we got there, it was close to you coming on stage or whatever. So I, I don't remember too much about the support act. I do remember it just feeling, yeah, just feeling really magical. Now you said the candles on the tables, that sort of sparked something, and... Um, mm. I remember you had quite a big band yeah, as well, like it felt. And uh, I think at the time I was going through, um, I was probably quite into like Jeff Buckley and things and being sad that I couldn't get to see him live and all that sort of stuff. And kind of this felt like, oh, maybe I've sort of caught the early wave of something special here, you know, just the, the, the evenings did have like a, a real sort of, oh, I found this secret club kind of thing you know yeah yeah yeah. well i think it's interesting to talk about jeff Butler because i suppose before that i was playing at a place called the 12 bar and a friend of mine came along and he worked in radio and he'd been given the first copy of grace um that had come over you know from the promotional team in america to columbia and he kept saying to me you've got to hear this guy you've got to see, you sounds you guys sound so similar you've got to check it out so eventually i went around to see him and we sat on the couch and we listened to this album and I was just like, oh my God, this is, not only is it absolutely phenomenal, but there is an uncanny resemblance, you know. When Mariana sings 
It's like some treasure tower appears Through the corridors of silk She pulls me down with cords of gold To the whistle of her heart Buried nestled close against her skin I bathe in her rose perfume and I surrender to her whims. My sort of fascination with Buckley was the fact that he he sort of communicated with the sort of feminine side of of, of songwriting what I, that I loved. I mean, I'd have loved to have been Joni Mitchell or someone to be able to sing like that, even though I adored Dylan and Cohen and all these other, you know, even the Beatles. But my... I was really into like Joni Mitchell and, and a lot of these, you know, Ricky D. Jones and the way they expressed and used their voice. So when Buckley came along, there was this kind of person who was, you know, one minute singing some Nazrat Fatih Ali Khan and jumping into some Nina Simone song and jumping into, you know, a Billy Holiday track or, or some, you know, um, a musical song from Broadway, you know. Yeah. There was this sense of real expansiveness in that music and that was a massive that was a big influence on me um obviously on Damien Rice as well you know in the way that his career was a lot of a lot of credit must go to someone like Buckley because he would have been in the same era of experiencing that yeah so Buckley died in 97 was it that early yeah uh, it's interesting how though the, some of the other offshoots of that because um I remember seeing uh, Matt Bellamy from Muse interviewed, and he was saying he saw Buckley play at Reading Festival yeah. in the nineties, obviously, and and he was like, "This guy sings like a girl," and that's that's what I wanted to do, <laughs> you know. And so yeah. it, it's kind of it, it's sort of weird, yeah. That that femininity kind of it sort of <laughs> it it kind of spawned Muse and you know you and Damien this kind of. <laughs> which is quite a yeah. bizarre thing to to contemplate. Yeah, I, mean, I think because there wasn't anyone really doing it. I mean, you know, whether it was from Tom York being influenced by Buckley, or yeah, you know, the, the, the 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 direct influence of 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 Buckley on Muse was just was, was immediately obvious. You know, to 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 anybody who listened to them, like, okay, this you know, because Buckley at that point was a sort of it was kind of like a sort of a little bit of secret between within that songwriting community, it wasn't a mainstream name by any way. Well, it still isn't, really, is it? No, I mean, no, uh, no, no. But his influence was just unbelievable, you know, um, because there wasn't anybody who'd come along and had been so... I mean, I'd seen him three times, I think, um, by that point, before he died, you know. Um, and there just wasn't anyone on the scene who could who could even match that that sheer talent, you know. It was just phenomenal to watch, you know. First time I saw him play was at Shepherd's Bush Empire, actually. Right. Um, and and that was a that was a really phenomenal experience because I've never been to a concert where I've walked in, everyone's chatting, it's all noisy, and someone comes onto stage. And but you got to remember that people would have known the people who probably turning up at this concert probably had heard and known you know, had, had got grace by that point. They were kind of turned up because they were in this kind of club of like, okay, this this is an amazing record. Let's go and check it out. So the venue f- packed full of people t- turned up to see, I suppose, in a way, if, some, if this was really going to be pulled off. You know, how much of this is kind of real or how much of it is trickery? Do you know what I mean? Because you don't know on a record, you know. And to see, I never seen a, an audience 
literally walk out of a venue silent. There was that you couldn't hear, and everyone was in shock. Everyone was in shock at how they were just emotionally like blown away because it was absolutely phenomenal that level of talent with the ease, the ease with which it, it flowed out of him. I mean, of course, you you learn more as a performer as you as you as you go on that you know. The trick of being a great performer is to make it look easy. It's to make it look. I mean, you know, you, you, your job is to make it look like you were born with some divine talent. The truth of it is, is you learn it. You know, you learn talent. You know, you can have a natural. Someone like Buckley would have had a natural ability. Do you know what I mean? Which would have just shot him to the moon with that because he he just had that ability. You know, photographic memory and all the rest of it. You know. You know, he could pick up a song, he could remember it, and he'd remember it five years later. You know, I mean, I couldn't do that. You know, I can barely remember my own words. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that he was great from the start. You know, he's he's going to have loads of, you know, substandard teenage yeah. songs and and whatever. Yeah, you, there's still a you, yeah. You can't. You, I think you can have. Yeah, there's there is obviously people have natural affinity with things, natural ability, but there's still like a a kind of craft that has to be learned as well yeah yeah for yeah sure. yeah and, and i think one, that the interesting thing about what I, the interesting sort of i suppose looking at it in retrospectively about buckley was that so many people including myself were so inspired by buckley by what he was doing um and of course it, it infiltrated your work and it inspired your work um and you realize as you're starting the journey that you 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 can't you're ne- a you're never going to be able to to achieve the same thing because you're not him yeah you have to i think all artists go on this journey of it's all about working out who you are who you are as an individual and these artists that you get massively inspired with which i've had you know numerous artists that have been such a big influence on me at that time you know like chet baker was a really big influence on me as a singer you know um, and I just spent all my time listening to Chet Baker and I listened to Buckley and it was all about breath control and it was all about technique and it was all about the ability to hold beautiful notes and not make them waver in any way and all these sort of things you get into, you know, you're all like guitar playing and I was particularly, you know, I was a relatively good guitar player anyway so to see someone like Buckley who was just, you know, a fantastic guitar player as well, um, to see him using that as a, instead of it being a prop, you know, it was like a sort of singer-songwriter prop of just playing a few chords. He was using it as a real, you know, instrument. Somebody who was at the top of their game, like, a, you know, like watching a, a great jazz pianist would, you know, like a Keith Jarrett or something like that, you know, who could play, could fall into a bit of bark and then could fall into a little bit of, you know, sort of Philip Glass or, you know, random jazz, you know um that's what that's that's so from a musician's point of view that's where i sat i was interested in music you know i wasn't interested in fame or i was interested in like the spiritual journey that music music took you on and music saved me in my life but music was always the thing that saved me you know but then but then conversely you know you you were sort of saying you'd reach this point in your 20s where like that there still has to be I guess some line of success if you're going to do it professionally 
you know, because, you know, you're saying you, you were like, if it doesn't happen by the time I'm 30, then I'll sort of knock it on the head. I guess that you're talking about, you are talking about ambition there, aren't you? It's not really about ambition. It's about actually survival. Yeah. You know, you, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I can only talk from personal experience, but, you know, I've never had any um, trust fund or I've never had any support financially apart from my dad buying me a couple of guitars over the years and stuff and had lots of love in my life but I've never had any financial support so you know everything was like completely sort of um hand to mouth you know it was all about how am I going to get through the next month how am I going to pay the rent how am I going to you know do this buy some guitar strings and and so for me it it was about you get you get to a point if you've been in your twenties and you've been living this existence of kind of living on let's say what you start to think is a kind of a bit of a a foolish dream, mm. you know. Like you start to think, am I just kidding myself? Am I just kidding myself that I've got anything to offer because this isn't going anywhere? Yeah. You know, I'm not getting anywhere, and I've got my renter crowd, my dearest friends who have come along support me and tap me on the back and say you're great but i had no reference point as to whether whether what i was doing was affecting anyone you see and so you get to a point where you just you start to have mental problems you start to get depressed you start to think you know how am i going to get through what am i going to do how am i going to provide how can i look after a girlfriend if i can't even look after myself you know so it becomes about necessity so the ambition thing is yeah of course you, you know once once you get a bit of momentum your ambition is of course you want to make this your life and you want it to be something that will bring you great things in life of course it does you know you meet great people and you have amazing experiences but for most of it even when you're in it even when you are and you do sign with the label you most of it's survival from my experience you know because you're dealing with people who are all about money and you're trying to protect that you're trying to protect you know in my case you know you do have to compromise to a certain degree because you can't you're you've got to find a way of making it pay to a certain degree unless you've got money coming in you know you know which i know a lot of musicians they wouldn't want other people to know but i know they've got money coming in from parents and trust funds and all the rest of it so if you don't have that you can't play that game you know so i want to jump ahead say so you, you you're in this sort of bushel residency kind of era and then um, I remember the My Declaration EP coming out and like I went I went and bought that and um, seeing like uh, sort of thank you to the sort of Bush Hall crew on there and feeling like a feeling like it was cool to see that feeling like I'd been part of it and then Feather and Stone comes out you're on you're on a major label like so so jump forward say like you know a year or two years from sort of Bush Hall era the albums come out does it feel like it's been a success. How, how does how does it feel like a year or two later? You like, ah, oh, this is this has worked out. It's hmm, a good question. Um, well, I'm trying to sort of have to take myself back to that moment because it's it's difficult to remember everything. But so I guess from my perspective, it didn't feel like Feather and Stone became a smash. It, no, it's, no, it's, no, it's, no, it's, it certainly didn't become oh did it you know and no, um no. there was a whole generation of artists that, like you talk about a singer-songwriter era obviously david gray had massive success damien rice had massive success but there was loads of stuff i liked like um 
Ed Harcourt, Gemma Hayes, Tom McRae, that whole scene that I was really into. Um, and they sort of had, there'd maybe be like a Mercury Prize nomination here and there and, you know, they'd sort of were getting some attention, but for most of them, it, they didn't seem to be able to capitalise on it. And Yeah, I mean, what happened during those um, visual shows, so at that point I'd sort of got some guys who were managing me and were just, they were trying to get me a deal. This is before I signed the deal for that first record. And, um, you know, the guy who actually signed uh, Damien, at, is it 19th floor or 17th floor, whatever it used to be called, the, the label, had come along and, and there was this whole conversation. He's like, well, I can't, I can't sign him as well because he's too similar. They're too similar and they're not similar in terms of what they were, we were doing this exactly the same thing in terms of the emotional understand, yeah. message, if you like. And I, and I got to know Damien over the years, and we knew each other and stuff. But it was it was a sort of that area had sort of been taken to a little bit of degree with with what he was doing. And then there was me, and then of course, so then I did Columbia, and there was this big, big hype around it when it was signed, like many artists have. And then it didn't really translate. It did really well in Ireland, and that's funny enough what kept me going and allowed me to sort of keep going. And long story. But I managed to sort of get into a second album. And things had progressed a little bit, but it's yeah, it was a it was a time when when they were playing me on radio. I mean, I did this show in Texas, and I remember meeting this guy beforehand. He said, "Oh, can I borrow your tuner?" And I said, are you playing? He's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm playing. I'm just playing after you." And we had a chat, and him and, him and his manager. And I went on and did my thing. I was like, "It's so noisy in here. This was like South by Southwest." right it's like, yeah it's unbearable and then after me comes on this little guy and i was thinking oh, it's, it's, no, it's like everyone just seems to be here for this guy and it was james blunt and it was this whole kind of the, the whole room had just been swamped by warner brothers and um <laughs> and this was live on radio too i was doing my set live on radio too and he was on afterwards and all but you know his his trajectory had already been set you know by yeah. that point so it was going to be like radio two committed to him and then after that, it was just nonstop James Blunt on the radio. Um, so these are the sort of things that happen, you know, and and it's there's so much timing involved in the music industry. I, mean, I consider myself to be very lucky that I've had the long journey that I, I'd had compared to many, many other artists. You mentioned some of them before who sort of would pretty much disappear or just hang on by fingernails. And, you know, it's never been easy for me get me wrong but I, I, I felt luckier than, than some you know <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah long before the danger sign Way out beyond the borderlines In the passages to heaven's door Read the elegies of many more Across the land and out to sea A wild river runs You mentioned the word compromises earlier mm. and I wanted to ask did you know how much have you ended up making what previously you might have considered an artistic compromise in order to maintain your life 
as an artist and can and also were there unexpected upsides to making compromises sometimes well the thing is is that um i mean it's a funny thing because I'm just trying to think of how to phrase this because <laughs> the thing is about I could never compromise the feeling or the sentiment that I was trying to convey but it was very clear to me that a six minute song like Don't Let Go off the first album or Scorpio Boy off the first album or you know even even a song like My Declaration which was in their eyes too slow for radio yeah, mm-hmm. there was these perimeters which, after you're knocking your head against a brick wall and you're not quite getting through, you can start thinking about adjusting some of those um, areas to try and help you to get something mm-hmm. on the radio. Because you get to a point where, whereby if you don't get anything on, you're basically dropped, you yeah. know, and you're you're back on the building site, or you might be doing whatever it might be. So. It's quite an interesting and romantic idea, this idea of um, the sort of ever um, stoic artist who doesn't compromise. I I don't believe any artist doesn't compromise because they'll cleverly look at what area they're in and what they've got to try and do if they can to keep it going. You know, some are done more blatantly than others and some are done... um, very kind of quietly if you like and in my case it was it was it combined with you know when i when i left sony i had it took me a long time to get out of that record deal you know they they clung on to me and clung on to me and they kept pushing me with these different producers and it was a nightmare you know i couldn't get out of the deal and i presented all this music um in fact i presented pretty much all of the music that i had for skybound on 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 the on the table of the uh, the director of BMG Sony at the time, and they still would be telling me I didn't have any songs, you know. <laughs> and you get you get you, you just it gets maddening after a while. You just think this is just this is insane. If 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 any if everything's being compared to um, this idea of which I felt songwriting was going more and more kind of. I suppose when you're in a major label thing, it's all it's all about quick bucks, basically, isn't it? So once I eventually, I managed to get them to, to buy me. I managed to, they bought me out eventually, and I was able to use that money and a lot of the artwork I did on the making of Skybound. And that, by that point, I was like, you know, getting married, and there happened to be this song, Better, which I'd written about getting married. And that was the song which was the thing that that you know I was able to I did it myself in terms of getting on radio 2 through Johnny Walker you know he picked up on it Johnny Walker picked up on it and then that's where the world revolved around you know the, 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 it was revolving around that one song which was kind of in some respects a very simple song which wasn't reflective of all my work but of course this is what happens in music you know if, whether it's Don McLean's American Pie to whatever else it might be you know it's it depends on whether you're able to, to to get further away from that and expand people into your whole catalogue. But radio's, radio at that 
you know, point was all based around, you know, your beautiful James Blunt and all the rest of it. So yeah, it was this song better than that was the thing. So to answer your question, it was it was both of those things. There 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 are unforeseen benefits and there's also difficulty as well when you get pinpointed on one track that's sort of the thing that people remember you by, you know. And then Boyzone wanna cover it. And so oh, yeah. is that yeah to to you, is that is that a cool thing or are you a bit mortified by that or like how does that work out for you because there's obviously like there's going to be financial rewards for that and it's going to elevate the status of the song but when you're coming from you know if if you want to be the next Joni Mitchell Jeff Buckley it's a different very different aesthetic it's a different world like how, how you how you really feeling about that well, I mean, you know, by the time that they'd covered that song, I was I was on my way to India, and I'd gone to India for six months. So the whole thing that when that happened, I was I was I was, you know, it wasn't even I wasn't even in the world of. I wasn't even you know I didn't even have a phone, you know. But the thing was was that I knew it was happening. But the thing is is that do do I am I a fan of Boyz N' music? Absolutely. Of course I'm not. I mean, it's it's got no relevance. It's not. It's, it's with all due respect to them because they're all really lovely people. Yeah. Like some of them over the years from coming to my gigs and so forth and they're all lovely people but you know it's it's, it's sort of cabaret you know, it's sort of in its own simplest way it's, it's music covering songs and all the rest of it so from a, but from a songwriting point of view you know I've had songs covered by various people be it from you know I don't know um, Shirley Bassey to Boyzone to other artists that have done my music it's a compliment when anyone does your music because the thing is you start off as a songwriter as a, as a writer you're writing you know? and any song that's being covered it doesn't matter I mean Engelbert Humperdinck has done one of my songs you know mm. it's like I have abs- I don't even I don't even know his music but it's it's not necessarily you cannot you can't put it in the cool factor I mean if you have someone doing it who's cool it's it's sort of okay it might make you look good or something but it's mildly irrelevant to the fact that your interest is in intellectual property of writing you know like you've written a great book if it's so if it happens to get turned into a fantastic film it's brilliant but what you want what you ideally want when you're writing is you want people to circulate your music so you can continue to make music mm-hmm. so your aim is to make sure that you're surviving if you know what i mean yeah it's but if you're asking me what do i think about it the thing is is that well they just copied my song and they did a copy of it there wasn't it wasn't like they didn't think but it's it's do you see what i mean yeah you know it's kind of like you're 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 kind of when you get contacted by someone saying that i had someone one the other day someone who'd done a copy of uh, my declaration for their new album and i went to listen it listen to it and you know um i didn't think it was great but you know they I've done it and I'm happy they're doing it and if I if I do get some money for that then that's brilliant <laughs> yeah you know yeah um, I don't know if that answers the question yeah particularly. I think so people change we don't notice I guess I thought we'd always be the same what I mean is I'm in pieces And this sinking feeling just won't go away 
But we both know it's over. It's bittersweet. Be my best friend. Let this road end. You've expressed dissatisfaction recently with the sort of album cycle process and said that you were looking at like alternate ways to present your music is that is that based on where you feel sort of the album is in terms of the state of the industry at the moment or is it more of just your own personal creative feelings well the thing is is that it's it's always really interesting talking to people about music when well I suppose when you're like yourself probably observing it from as a music fan you know I know you make your own music as well so I know that you know the experience of making music but the cycle of making music had become for me quite um how do I put this predictable and 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 laborious and sort of yeah th- those two words come to mind because in a way like and, and sort of slightly depressing because for one thing is that it was always about the story everyone it was all there's always this element of pr attached to everything everything's got to have a story and most of these stories that you hear about them the kind of mythical stories that we hear and most of them are made up you know <laughs> the truth of it is is that they know that this is what people are more interested in you see people are more interested in the story and and once they get attached to a musical theme of a story um then you're you're it you can get them in you can get them in to have some sort of romantic idea association associated with the story and then lock them into the music and the music played several times and then basically you can get them in and and so forth so the whole thing about for me that i was experiencing was everything was about Everything needed a story to be attached to it, and the cycle of making music had become so much about personality. So it's like, um, so this album is Tom Baxter goes to India. This album is Tom Baxter gets divorced. This album is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was it was so much about profile and personality as well. It's like you you couldn't you can't be a quiet symbol anymore can't exist without having this continuous profile that needs to be projected and projected on Instagram, Facebook. You know, the cycle of it was 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 becoming very sort of it didn't relate, it didn't interest me, it didn't it didn't stimulate me, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's just hard because um like as as a music fan, I'm still very attached to the idea of the album it's still the yeah it's still the per- and like, i shouldn't I, sh- I contextualize things too much well. probably and mm-hmm. so um yeah sometimes the the narrative the story behind an album or yeah it being a piece of art it feels more like yeah it feels more like a complete movie as opposed to scenes from a movie being watched individually or something and of course there's a song is still a complete thing and it's <laughs> there are plenty of artists where they have individual songs that i love but don't care for the album so much but uh, I still struggle to get past this idea of the album being the ultimate medium for music 
but maybe maybe I need to change my mindset on that. You know? Well, I, I'm completely with you. I mean, I this is the thing you see. For me, I see albums as novels. You know, yeah. for me that there's something that I've I've every every album I've done has been a complete piece of work. I don't look at it as individual segments of music that I'm. You know, what I mean, it's all one completely cohesive thing, and that's it's still there. There is still an interest in that, but it's just that the emphasis is, of course, very much on the single. That's not necessarily. I mean, that has been like that in the sixties. It was like that fifties and sixties, but it's um. I mean, everything transmutates, but it's just in terms of when you are in that way. If you were that way inclined, and you see things that way. The space for you isn't necessarily open armed. It's it's very sort of like because it's fashion based. Everyone wants you to do it in a certain way, and everyone else is doing it. Yeah. So, do you know what you're going to do next? I have no idea, actually. I have no idea. Um, in some respects, I'm. I've sort of I've retired from it for a while. I mean, I've focused on being a father, and I did some music for some films last year. Um, but I've been watching and thinking and watching and and trying to work out how I feel about doing it, continuing within that path. And then if I do do that, how I go about it, because it needs to be stimulating for me. You know, I have to have my whole heart in something to be able to do it. And yeah, I mean, obviously I'm good. I've got stuff that I'm doing terms of creatively but if you're asking me about the trajectory of my career i don't know from sort of an outside perspective i think it'd be amazing if you did something that was more because you talked there was a lot around the other side of blue about how unadorned and stripped down the songs were and but i'd love to hear you do something that was much was more akin to like I don't know the Blue Nile or Talk Talk or something having your voice in a much bigger soundscape mm-hmm. I think that would be fascinating you know like more of a more of a big sort of sonic world or, or are you for you is it very much about the song has to be like able to stand up stripped down to its bones and that is the purest form or do you like music that has a bigger sonic band? I mean do you like Talk Talk and Blue Nile and Radiohead or whatever I, 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 I do know I mean I like you know sections of Blue Nile and and, and I got all this the majority of their stuff I really like them and and then um, Talk Talk I love as well and yes, I do love the expansiveness of. I mean, you know, my first the first two records are very broad in terms of richly um, instrument instrumentally with strings and all sorts. But um, it was a combination of the fact that I was becoming more and more finding myself touring more on my own because I couldn't make yeah taking people out on the road. So my world it sort of revolved around more about me just having to demonstrate the song in a simple format which is me and the guitar so there is a joy and passionate love for that it wasn't really like a signing off and not wanting to do the big sound it was more just to do with the fact that where did that budget to create those records 
I guess it will just have to be whether I can find the right time because you've got to always think about how you're going to take it on the road. And yeah. taking it on the road is very expensive. Um, I don't know if you've done much of that, but it's no. it's, a, it's not simple, you know, when you've got to, even if you've got to pay for a sound man, you know, it's it's very expensive. So you then, it all comes down to numbers of how many bums you can get on seats to be able to pay for your hotel that night. This is unfortunately the sort of harsh reality of it. You know, the, the harsh reality of it is, is from an outside perspective, a, a fan might just think, well, I'd love you to do something with the Philharmonic. And you're like, well, yeah, so would I, you know. But uh, how do you how do you pay for it? Mm. Yeah, does that sound a bit too coldly realistic for you? <laughs> I, I guess I guess maybe obviously your your earlier stuff about was lush. It was very much you know like you mentioned strings and it, it was very much organic. Yeah, I, I think I'd I'd like to hear you. It'd be interesting if you you know bought. <laughs> it feels so crass to say, but bought some synth. No, no, I don't but, mind. But, I mean, like this technology. this idea of like. Yeah, more. I guess. I guess more in an electronic field, you know, and yeah, more yeah, yeah. slightly more expensive. But like with your yeah. like stunning voice, sort of within a different sonic world, you know. And even if the songs could still be stripped down, so you can you can play them solo acoustic or or some of them. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I mean, I, funnily enough, I did do quite a lot of of, of I, I worked. There's a lot of music that hasn't been released. Right. It's the other thing, and I did a lot of stuff which was. Uh, with this in mind some of it which i've been sort of ruminating on as to whether i should release or not and some of it's i think it's, 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 it's really quite good um but it's i think i i suppose i've probably just got to a point where i was like mm, you know i think when you when you've been when you've been hustling for deals for like you know 20 years and trying to work out how because at the end of the day like you've got to you got to survive in it, and that's 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 the thing that I think. I don't know. I mean, I know you talk to lots of musicians, so you're talking from everyone from different scales of music. But it's it's a very. I think it's a very strange time in music at the moment because the pace of it the, and the value of music is so. It just seems to be so diminished in terms of the value of it. I mean, I was even talking to a well-known member of a band just a few days ago and he was just talking about how he's in this massive band and the things that he's doing on the side to support this but his profile looks fantastic but you're just thinking this is insane that you know you can have 50,000 streams you know on a Spotify and you, you I mean I can look at my streams and I can just think this is just for me it doesn't make any sense that this is where everybody's listening to music but the value of it is so low. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't quite get your head around it. If you can look at some of the figures that I look at, and then I look at the pounds that that creates, it's absolutely shocking. Yeah. But this, this is where what what you do have, though, which you're lucky in, is that you've got a fan base that you can harness. So, you know, bands, bands. So, for example, look at, um, I know I know they're not a cool band, but they're, I, I adore them. Um, Marillion how they've yeah. like what they've done in terms yeah, they're of huge, aren't they? <laughs> they, they're huge, well they are huge but they were close to get they were close to not being able to be a full-time band in the late 90s they were on indie deals and they nearly had to like it was it was precarious but for them crowdfunding saved them because the fan base were passionate enough to 
pre-order the album months in advance, even before the album was made. And in return, they got you know like special edition of the album, not not available in not available in the shops. They had like names printed in the inlays and all, all sorts of like perks from being in on it. And so they mm. were able to harness this this fan power because they had a fan base. You yeah, know, like yeah, Lloyd Lloyd Cole's quite good at harn. You know, he's got a fan base that he can harness. You know, and that's what you do have on your side. Like if you were a new artist, yeah, you don't stand. It's it's almost impossible. You know, but but for you, you do have a fan base where if you can offer, you know, that connection to you, you know, or ways to follow you through a project or to get things that you can't get. In, you know, I think it's it's no coincidence that vinyl sales are are doing really well because there's this there's this commodified simple version of music that isn't that interesting to people buying a cd is not that interesting to people anymore but people want collectible things or they want convenience so i think you to you have to do both yeah yeah i mean i i, I know, you know i i don't want to defunct any of those sort of things but the thing is is that you see that even even vinyl you see this is there's a slight mythology around that right you know i personally think because and this is from talking to a lot of people i know on the road as well that they do people do love it from a fan point of view. you've got you've got to remember like you've got to make let's say you're making three i'm talking really sort of plainly here but say you're going to make a thousand vinyl mm-hmm. you know you you first of all you got to make the record right then you've basically got to get the artwork done which is very costly yeah Right. And then you've got to basically get it into production. And production, let's say for a gatefold, and a really nice gatefold, is about three grand, you know. Say mm-hmm. if you want maybe to give or take less, you know, here, there and everywhere, depending on what company it is, you know. And then you've got to store them. And you've got to pay for the storage. And then so it's like there's I mean, I, I completely get what you're saying. I completely get what you're saying about this this new model. I know Marillion's story and I know I know that I know all of those, you know, yeah. things you talk about, and I, and I think they're really valuable. But it's, I suppose, it's a bit like when you've been doing it on your own for so long, you you fatigue, you know, in this yeah. kind of in this ability to be able to, um, I don't want to say play the game, but just sort of you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm probably not going to articulate myself very well, but it's it's just that sometimes it just feels like hot air. Sometimes you know, and it's it's about finding. The, I think the thing is, it's about one of the things I love watching. The thing I'm really into is this YouTube channel for certain individuals who I think who who I follow who demonstrate really honestly their journey and the journey within an honest perspective is transfixing that that's completely akin to, to music I mean, like if you can get that combination right which i think is perhaps what you're suggesting right and i'm with you on that it's about getting the combination right between way making sure that what you're doing is authentic to what you're trying to give people because at the end of the day you know i only did music because it was my way of, i wanted to feel less lonely in the way that I felt, was that I had all these feelings. I thought, does anyone else feel this way? And me meeting all the people that I've met over the years who've come to my constant stuff, the thing I loved the most was meeting those people because they made me feel like, okay, I'm not mad. 
know, to have these feelings and to feel as vulnerable, to feel as emotional as a, as a, as a man, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's about combining that with the way you're pr- putting yourself out into the world. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And making sure that you're doing it honestly. And for me, I think I got to a point where I just couldn't find that package where I felt like this is what I want to do and I want to give this, if I'm going to do this, I have to do this honestly so that if Matt, you know, is listening to this or George up in Scotland is listening to this, they feel like that, that I'm being really genuine about it. Not that I'm just following some sort of process or procedure that every artist is doing because this is what every artist is doing, if you, if you, if you get what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'm sort of with you, and I, I think what I'm just trying to say is that I haven't found the area in which I want to exist in, you know, because there's so many platforms, there's so many platforms, and there's so many areas that you're meant to be doing, from Instagram to Facebook to YouTube to bam, 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 you know. It's it's so exhausting. When you have to do that yourself, yourself you find yourself flat because you just can't keep up with the technology. Well, don't worry about Facebook. Facebook is dead, mate. Trust me. <laughs> Funny, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Facebook was ironically the only one that I really knew how to use. So there you go. I'm not sure what Facebook, Facebook's over. It's so hard to get. There's such a push on like paying for sponsored posts and things. Yeah, I know. You, yeah. You'll find you'll find you'll put you'll put stuff on Facebook and it won't it won't be reaching much of your audience. No, no. Yeah. And that was it, Matt. You know, I was ending up. Because, you know, a lot of the, of the fan base I have are on Facebook, you know. Yeah. And I would find myself in a situation where, they, you know, you're having to pay £200 to promote something. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, this is insane. Yeah. And you don't even know if you're getting to your audience, no. you know. The, the, the thing is, is that I, I need, probably really need help with it. That's the thing. But it's, it's fine. And it's just, because you can't do it all. That's the dilemma with it, you see. You can't make the music be great at being an artist and also manage all this stuff. You know, I, I know from talking to friends of mine who are quite established artists, you know, they've either got, you know, wives or girlfriends or, 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 or fathers or sisters or really good, really committed managers that commit to this because it's just, it's a full-time job just dealing with the technology. Yeah. You know, and I think I'm, I'm trying to give you a like, really honest appraisal of it. You know, because I get, I get, I think I, from, from people who know my music, they, they'll often, they'll often say to, to me, like, oh, you know, why don't you just do this? And I'm like, and I'm like, it's so frustrating because they have no idea what it's like to actually try and to do that. You know? Yeah, I think this this feels antiquated now, but I, I, I think email mailing lists are still a brilliant way because. Email is email, and if you send an email, it's going to reach. If you've got a fan that has signed up to your mailing list, yeah, they're going to receive that email. It's not going to get lost on like a social media platform that you don't control. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've done all this. You know, I've done all these campaigns where you're, but you, you know, trying to go back and find people's emails. Is, I mean, yeah, it, it's so hard, Matt. I mean, when I left Sony originally, I gave them my whole mailing list because that was part of the deal. I couldn't get it back off them. So right. I lost the whole mailing list that I had, built up through all the Bush day, Bush all days, et cetera, right? Yeah. Then I went into EMI, did some deals with them. Same thing happened with them. Couldn't get the, 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 the mailing list back because they knew that this this was before the time that us as artists had known that, uh, inf, you know, um, data was Power, yeah. valuable. 
you know. Um, so even on the last campaign, you know, which was a significant amount of money was spent on it, you know, even just on a very simple acoustic record with the sort of, you know, yeah, we go through all this sort of process. And um, I think what I'm trying to articulate is it's so complicated. It's so it's so time consuming trying to harness all this. It's, it's, it's more than one man can do. It's, and I think for me, it's finding a way where I can do it, whereby it doesn't it doesn't infringe upon my ability to be a father and be a, be a husband and, and, and have a life, you know, because yeah. I've spent 30 years just working. You know, that's what I do. It's just worked, 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 you know. I went through one marriage and it probably failed because I was working too much. So, listen, I, kn- I know you don't do many interviews and so um, I really appreciate you agreeing to do this and I hope, I hope it's been okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I love... I love what you've been doing. It's, it's, it's all, all credit to you. You know, it sounds great. A lot of the really interesting people talking about music, a lot of which I'm fans of their music. So, you know, well done for all the hard work you've been putting into it. Thank you so much, mate. If you're enjoying the show, please consider subscribing and leave a nice review if you can. There's quite a back catalogue of shows to discover too. Interviews with David Crosby, Stevie Van Zandt, David Duchovny, Stuart Copeland and loads more. You can find me on Twitter at Signals Podcast and on Instagram at Sending Signals Podcast. WH Lung are a band from the northeast of England who are due to release their second album Vanities on the 8th of October. And you'll hear some clips from that album during the interview. I caught up with Tom and Joe from the band and we had a conversation about the making of the album and the psychology of making a second album in general. They had some interesting things to say about the creative process, particularly regarding the value of creative space, doing some writing apart from your bandmates. Enjoy. Have you been to the Hyde Park Picture House? Yeah, yeah, it's great. I love that place. Yeah, I've only been been once, but I, I knew it from like a TV show in the 90s as a kid and so um yeah when i went to leeds a few years ago it was sort of like a priority visit and i think they had like a, a power cut so they had fired up the emergency kind of gas lighting that they have inside which was really cool yeah yeah it was fantastic and they um they're really kind they let they let us into like the projection room so we got a bit of a tour of the place as well um oh, wow. yeah it was fantastic yeah that's good yeah it is cool i've not been there in a few years but yeah, we used to go there quite a lot. Hey, Joe. Hi, sorry, my camera wasn't working for whatever reason. That's right, man. It's so hot in this house. I've, I've got a uh, full disclosure. I've got no trousers on. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought I'd, I thought I'd wear a shirt to spare you the spare you the awkwardness, but it's boiling. There's like there's there's not a place to cool down. So I've just been lying like starfish outside. I just went to a really good exhibition. Are you in London? I'm about an hour from London. I'm in I'm in South End in Essex. Wow. This is really good. So it's on oh you can't see it, it's backwards. It's on at the RA. Um this um East African London artist and he's he's also brought in a load of East African artists, but it's like really beautiful. So I've I've just been doing that cooling down and I came out into the blistering heat again so. So are you are you back in London? Because I think Tom said you'd been away. I'm in London. I was in Surrey. Right. Just 
in a nice country house with some mates, but uh, back in London, yeah, back amongst the heat. Which part of London are you? I'm really near Hampstead Heath. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm staying with a friend of my mum's actually for this year. Yeah, do you like it? I do really like it. I think I'm spoilt for space. Um, I like having some space, and you can kind of get it if you live near. You can kind of get it if you live near Hampstead Heath. So it's a nice place to go and mooch about. Um, I love London. I love being able to just go to go to really great exhibitions whenever you want. Yeah, um, it's the benefits, isn't it? I wanted to ask just about, I guess, the obvious like question about making a second album and how did it feel daunting the the second album it's sort of like well now it's now it's a catalogue there's two albums and it's like a it's like a piece of a puzzle in what in what our career is is going to be is that something like you you thought about a lot sort of just in a in a theoretical kind of thing i don't think so personally um you positing that now is the first time i've thought about our output as any catalogue or oeuvre. The way we wrote this album was slightly accidentally, actually. It was more so passing ideas back and forth. The album appears um, as a collection of songs written during a certain period of time, rather than us starting out the process of writing an album to add to a catalogue or uh, to be in and of itself um, anything um, individual or specific. fun this time round. I think it might even be dangerous to write new music as it would add on to your previous offerings. You have to write you have to write something um, on on impulse if it's gonna be authentic. But it, we just we we genuinely just had a lot of fun writing these songs, I think is the I think is the takeaway from that period of time. Do you agree, Tom? Yeah, I don't. Th- I think we perhaps. Yeah, definitely. I think maybe with the in-between single, we may we maybe overthought or didn't overthink, but maybe we're more in that ballpark of being like. Ooh. But then with this, as Joe says, it was just like just writing new ideas and not. There wasn't really any. It didn't feel like there was any pressure to sort of. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It was just. It was just quite good. But I think you. I think you find you. I mean, I think I we found. I found that like having a little the air maybe needs to clear well I don't know if it will for the next one but from the first to the second you need a bit of time to sort of recalibrate and then and then you're sort of a bit more chilled about it really but I'm sure that's different for different people but I think it's good to have a bit of a figure out what you want to do and just try loads of stuff mm. just, like just try out things really um, it's the removal of any um, pressure of outcome yeah what I found really liberating with this particular process. These songs were written for the purpose of writing songs for each other, which um, 
it's genuinely how it felt to me. So it was the removal of outcome allowed us to be much freer and pass ideas back and forth as a way of communicating because we, we, we hadn't seen each other for a long time but we were passing songs back. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was a good... Yeah, and it felt like it kept... Because obviously without being able to play or, or do any of the other things that made you feel like you were sort of in a band or whatever, it was a nice way to keep... I don't know, just to keep things moving and but the fun of it as opposed to, yeah, thinking about what they would do. I mean, obviously we had in, like, we were in that mode where you want to have a second album or whatever, but it was, yeah, it was, it was really light. And I think we'd made some changes at that time, both in like how we approach things and more practically that, that, that works as well. And when you have like a new workflow or whatever of how you do it, it just makes, just sort of freshens everything up, doesn't it? It makes it feel new. Yeah, I guess it's just weird because ultimately, like you, you, you were saying, Joe, you just went to an exhibition, and so you've you've seen, you've seen all this kind of art together, and and you've you've given it a, a context, you know, and you probably look at artists you like, and you contextualise it as as part of a catalogue and a and a progression. Is is it? Do you think it's harder to do that with with yourself? Oh, certainly. Yeah. 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 You have an idea of yourself as an artist which will be wildly different from other people's idea of you as an artist regardless that's just individual perception yeah um, but i think it's impossible to separate the tinkering mind from your own music so if you can in any way let some of that go it's helpful for your future career you don't want to be keeping on it's like um it might be john cooper clark who said but poems never finished merely abandoned so i've done this here now and to think about it in some larger schema or um at one remove it's thankfully not our concern <laughs> you're driving mad i'm interested in like the influence of location and surroundings on like art as well and i think when you're looking at visual art like whether it's films or paintings or photography or whatever the kind of this like the surroundings and the location and its influence can often be like really obvious but with with music it's it's not necessarily and i i wondered how much you feel like your surroundings and where you've placed yourself like influence the final product yeah i think think because because we did as we say in a bit earlier like definitely when we were back in Todmorden and finishing things up, it, that all sort of ties into like thinking, looking back at it, I don't know, the, the location of where we were seemed important for how everything all sort of came together. Um, I think it does. I think, I, yeah, like I think there's that, there's that thing in that David Byrne book where he talks about this sort of thing, isn't it? And how, I don't know if you, if you read that, how music, how music works. works. I've got it on, I've, I've got it on Audible. But I haven't. Yeah. I haven't listened. I haven't listened. It's, it's like one of those things. I've like. I really like David Byrne. I've seen him live. I'm like. I'm sort of a fan. But yeah. I haven't got round to how music works yet. But it's it's on my audible kind of thing to to listen to. It's really good. But there's a bit where he sort of talks about you like physical surroundings and the influence that has on like the music. But and then I guess we were always saying sort of the whole sort of package around it. But I think being in Todmorden and it's sort of and having like the the sort of no pressure. And then, like, 
yeah, the weather was great. We're going on walks, we're going swimming, just chatting about ideas. I do feel like that definitely sort of tied into the the lightness, as we always say, with the album, Joe. And then and even like how the then the your idea with Joel for the artwork and stuff as well, and all the sort of the sort of organic sort of colours of that. It all, yeah, it does, it does all definitely all sort of tie together in my in my in our mind, probably for how for where we were when it all sort of came together. I think it definitely has an effect. And then even in terms of when we were writing the album, sort of early stages, the things that we were doing in the places that we were going. And we were just sort of going out a lot, basically. And that, I sort of think, had a massive influence for what we were hearing, but just the whole sort of, again, the sort of like easy going, having fun nature of it all. When we lived in Topping together, it was the first time in our adult lives that we lived outside of the city. Mm. Yeah. And the album, if you're looking at it geographically, could be, I think, read as the product of wanting to include some of that, some of that, some of the textural, elemental, natural world that we, that we had, that we had access to. We had more space. As Tom says, we'd go on big walks, and there was actually when we were when we realised that we were making an album, we wrote down all the things on a big piece of paper didn't we, that we wanted the album to represent in terms of its production, and it was words like um, texture and natural and earthy. We wanted there to be a thickness and a rumble to it, and then the proximity to um, Manchester. And the access to that, to the Manchester nightlife um, and the kind of music and community that was going on. That burgeoning, good time, community, dance quality. I, it was a real desire of ours to, to introduce that into our process. So it was almost like a coming together of those things, yeah. How different would the album have turned out had there not been a lockdown? Ooh, I think it would have been quite quite a lot different, probably. I think it would have taken quite a lot longer as well. I think we would have sort of, we were sort of um, still sort of, you know, still enjoying it. But I did, I think we were sort of it, sort of plodding along in it. In. So, yeah, we would had that for the single in between albums. Um, and then we were sort of, we had some stuff, we had some stuff lined up and I think we were going to have some, stuff that which would have been great but I think we were we hadn't fully committed to sort of where where we wanted to go with stuff which you'd have to commit to like not in terms of sound just in terms of like how things were going to work and we just sort of had made a few changes that 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 extra sort of time and the lockdown did give gave us time to do that I think if it didn't happen I'm sure if yeah I think I think we it might have taken us longer to get there or we might have gone somewhere else with it I don't know, but I think it would have been different, definitely. And, and the, ta- the timeline would have been, I'm, I'm certain, would have been, we probably wouldn't have finished it yet. <laughs> no, we, we moved away from, we were never massively a 
writing in the room kind of band, were we? No. But we but we removed all trace of that. I think is what the lockdown did for a lot of bands, for a lot of musicians, a lot of artists. Removed all trace of writing in a band with collaborators. It gives you more space, and it actually introduced some of the benefits of having space from your fellow songwriters. You have that removed. You have that space, so you can work something out together rather than going round, um, going round a riff or um, a synth line that no one really likes for a hundred times. There's a separation between all the all the different components that can be helpful. I think space can be helpful in writing and songwriting, space and time. Uh, it's, it is a different kind of communication, so I think it is important to get into a room with it at some point. And I think that's what happened when there's a song on the album called um, Ways of Seeing. And that's what happened when we, when we kind of finally were back in the room together, Tom. Yeah. And a song just came out of nowhere because we were finally able to get into a room together and have that connection. Yeah. Um, so it can work both ways, but there's definitely a there's definitely an upside to both. It's just about exploiting those it's about exploiting those as strategies. Yeah. Yeah, like again, like people's workflow is different, isn't it? And like it's like for me, it takes me ages to get something down where it might be like, I mean, I was thinking this the other day, like I was watching some, like a producer do like a talk through of how they work on like a YouTube thing for this like uh, charity. And I was thinking if someone walked, looked over my shoulder as I was doing stuff, they'd probably think it's an absolute disgrace. It's like getting the, the sort of rainbow warning on that constant <laughs> but it's like the way that I do it but it takes ages and when you're when you're on your own Joseph you've got the time to sort of put the things together before you then show them to someone mm. and, like, and then that's when you try new stuff Joe was there um like particular lyrical themes that you were trying to explore on vanities or did you know did you notice a theme develop when you kind of put it all together yeah, I think more so I was noticing a theme. I was writing much more from an interior place and it was more to do with it was more to do with allowing first thoughts to come through and working on those. Um, I think previously I was um, trying to bring down abstract ideas and allow those to settle into whatever structure we were working on with this i was with this i became quite melody driven actually um and that was useful for then um for then um having a foundation to work from so i was noticing writing a lot more about relationships and relationships with myself which I mean, that was that's that's the kind of vulnerable place I didn't feel able to communicate from authentically on the first album. First album was a little more 
outward facing, I think. Um, it took, took some vulnerability to let, to let some of those ideas through, actually. So I was writing about experiences that I had, people in my life, relationships I was trying to make work, and relationships I was discovering were working for particular reasons. So somebody like, for instance, is actually about trying to love myself, which is a very vulnerable thing to do on a um, upbeat, dancey uh, guitar uh, track. But that that's what happened. So I, uh, I, I let that be. And Pearl in the Palm is trying to conduct conscious relationship with someone, having that as an intention, holding something lightly and letting it go into the world and loving the person because of the relationship that you've nurtured rather than being dependent on them for your happiness. And these were ideas that I was becoming interested in at the time for my own sake, in terms of self-awareness, in terms of um, self-exploration. We had a lot of, um, globally, we had a, a period of enforced stillness and silence through which we had to sit with ourselves. And it, it was difficult for a lot of people. And I allowed some of those difficulties and those realizations to come through. I took a lot of the pressure off, which I've only now started to realize has actually resulted in some um, nice stuff. I didn't think of this as um, a particularly um, poetic or lyrically constructed album. But it's going through, it's going back through them in practice again. I'm thinking there's some nice turns of phrase here. And it was because I, 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 I think I just let those things be. Tom, do you have a favourite on Vanities? Um, it's changed for, for ages. It was Kaya, the last one. I really liked, I really liked that one because that was just felt really good at the time. Yeah, and then I, I, I don't know now. Maybe in sort of, I do really like Arpy for the reasons of mm. like it's the sort of most different song we've written, sort of musically, I think. And um, you could, and then it's maybe it was just a new, like quite a sort of different way of, of working that one. And I really enjoyed, really enjoyed how that came together in the studio and what the sort of extra bits that Matt, our producer, added with that. Because a lot of the album was just trying to find new ways of working into just making different sounds, playing around a lot more on the computer and with different sort of bits and bobs. And I feel like Harpy was it really sort of sums that up. Yeah, I think that's I think that's one of the highlights, RP. Although oddly I think it's one of the I think it's one of the through lines from the first album for some for some reason. I see that as like one of the things that feels more of a continuation because I know you've deliberately tried to push into more immediate territory but RP is one of the things that feels like it it connects a little bit to but I guess it's just it's all it's all perception isn't it there's not there's not there's not a right or wrong opinion on it it's just no no I can see that though because like there's this sort of more similar it's one of the quicker ones on this album it's a sort of similar pace and that even though it's an electronic drum beat it's kind of like that sort of like the sort of thing we had on the first one but with just a different sort of sound I can definitely see what you mean there yeah yeah and I sort of thought because yeah it is the most different I think that's why I quite like quite like it I think tem tempo wise and I don't know if this is something people will pick up on but it is all sort of like 
And this was kind of thought out in a way between sort of 120 and 125 BPM because of the stuff we were listening to and because of that sort of, that's the sort of dance music that we liked was around that. And, and then and then RP was sort of just much more like, I mean, it was a bit of a fluke in a way because the sequence, from my point of view, the sequence that started it off, I was just sort of playing around with a patch on one of the keyboards that I have and then just had the sort of arp on latch and pretty much put my hand wherever. And then I was like, well, that sounds pretty good. And then, no, you're away with it. So it came about very easily as well. Yeah. Um, is there anything we haven't covered that you guys want to talk about? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, with the, 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 the sort of the thing, the thing we're thinking of now the most is how to put it into the live setting really is the sort of big focus now um obviously with the 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 festivals coming up i think we're gonna keep a sort of balance of first album things as well but and people won't have had a chance to well people will only have heard two of the the new album songs but we're gonna it's like half and half but then for our tour later in the year it would be um, a case of integrating all the new ones into live, which would be really fun, to be honest. And we've got we've got a new member with Hannah. Although Hannah had done stuff with us, like from like twenty eighteen, like just not she's just not been in the band, so it doesn't. It, she is it, she is a new member, but it feels like she's always been sort of part of the the overall thing anyway. So I guess we're just doing that at the moment and how how the things will work live. <laughs> at the moment is from writing the songs over the summer ourselves and then coming into this uh, new format playing playing these songs live the songs change don't they yeah change and they become different animals for me that's going to be the tale of this the second half of this year is um easing back into that sense of community that we've also missed um mm. as an audience member as a performer as a, just a member of that wider community, it's music's made to be shared and played together. So that's that's going to be really important for me. I think coming out of this period of or stillness, coming back into movement, coming back into sharing togetherness. Seems like a good place to finish. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's a good chance. that's our show thanks as always to our guests whose opinions are our own thanks also this week to Will Lawrence I'll see you in two weeks although the episode will be out a couple of days late on Thursday bye for now